Our sermon today will be taken from Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. This is the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began go to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on a sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published to Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said and he would do it to them. And he did not do it. This says the Lord. Thanks, Emily, and thanks, Shipta and Jackie, for the announcements. Um, just two quick things on that. Um, for the community groups, the one in, on, in uh, Mentang is always at the same place, but the one in, in um, wait, the one in Mentang, in central Jakarta, is always in the same place. The one in west Jakarta and the married couples group vary and change. So if you are interested and you're not yet plugged in in any of the community groups and you want to be part of it, please, uh, uh, on, in the booth up front, there's a sign-up little sheet paper. Just sign your name uh, and we'll contact you. Um, um, based on the information you gave us, whether through email or through phone. Second thing is we have our last membership class session today, and it'll be uh, in the same spot. We've bought lunch, so lunch is provided. We've bought plenty of food. If you guys want to know more about CCC and who we are and our church structure and our um, all, all those kinds of things, um, please join the membership class. There'll be food there. It doesn't mean that you're committing yourself to membership. All it means is that you want to get to know who we are more, okay? So we'd love for you to come and join that. Even if you haven't signed up for it, um, that's okay. All right, so today we're going to continue in our series through the book of Jonah. And as many of you know who's been with us before, we're taking a break from our larger sermon series through the book of John, and we're going to go through the book of Jonah. And it's a pretty short book, so we're going to go ahead and knock it out in one go, okay? Today is the third sermon. We've done two sermons already, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and next week will be our last chapter and our last sermon in the book of Jonah, chapter 4. So as we've learned from the first few chapters, when studying the book of Jonah, we must study it under the context that it's in, okay? Under the main purpose the author intended the book to be about. Now, what is the main purpose of the book of Jonah? It's to answer one question. What do you think God should do to sinful people in the world? What should he do to evil and sinful people of this world? How do, you, how do you know that this is the main point? It's because it's how the book ends. The unique thing about the book of Jonah is that it ends with a question, an unanswered question. It, it kind of leaves it um, um, unanswered. And the question is God asking Jonah what Jonah thinks God should do to the people of Nineveh. 
And as we've studied, the Ninevites are evil people. These are sinful people who have all kind of gross war practices, and they've done really, really bad things. And God is asking, what should I do to these people? And Nineveh is also a city, we know, in Assyria. Assyria is Israel's arch enemy at the time. So not only are the people of Nineveh evil, sinful people, they're Jonah's personal enemy. And God's asking Jonah, what should I do to them? And he ends the question there. What do you think God should do to sinful, evil people in the world who pose a personal threat to you like Assyria did, like Nineveh, Nineveh did to Jonah? Now, as you read in chapter 1, Jonah thinks they all should just literally burn in hell. They all should just experience the wrath of God. And we see that from chapter 1 when God commanded Jonah to preach to Nineveh in hope that they would repent. He didn't want to. He ran away and he fled the exact opposite direction. Chapter 1, verse 2, to a place called Tarshish, which is the exact opposite of Nineveh. He's saying, no, these guys don't deserve your mercy. These guys don't deserve your kindness. They deserve to burn in hell. I'm not going to preach to them. And then we see at the end of chapter 1, God being rightfully angry at Jonah because of his disobedience. But then in chapter 2, we see God miraculously saving Jonah, having mercy on Jonah, saying that, Jonah, you are no better than the Ninevites. Do you see your rebellion? Do you see your sin? How should I treat sinful people? And now we get into chapter 3, where God, after graciously saving Jonah, gives Jonah a second chance and repeats the same exact command, almost, that Jonah disobeyed in chapter 1. Okay? Will Jonah now obey? If he does obey, how does he obey? And are there lessons that we can learn today through Jonah's act of obedience that can inform us in our Christian walks and our obedience to our sovereign God? All right? So I want to point out three things today. Making sense of obedience from Jonah's actions making sense of obedience from Nineveh's repentance, and making sense of obedience from the cross. Making sense of obedience from Jonah's actions, Nineveh's repentance, and from the cross. All right, I'll pray us in, and then we will begin our um, studying our passage. Lord, steady our hearts and make it be transfixed upon your word and not on anything else that we may focus on what you have revealed to us from your holy scripture and that we may get to know you better and your love for us and also what you have required for us so that we can be in deeper worship to you, of you, not only be more equipped to do so, but also see the drive and the real reason of why we fall into worship. Um, and Father, help us through this intricate text that we may um, fall in deeper love with you as your love affects all that we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, first point, making sense of obedience from Jonah's actions. We see here Jonah in chapter 3, finally, after rebelling the first time to God's command in chapter 1 to preach to Nineveh, now he gets reinstated again with the same command that we hear from chapter 1, verse 1. God's command in chapter 3, verse 1 is an echo, so to speak, of what he told Jonah to do in chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read it, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And this time, Jonah, in verse 3, obeyed. We see in verse 3, it says, He arose and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. 
Whereas in chapter 1, verse 2, when God first told him to preach the message of peace to Nineveh so that they may repent, Jonah arose, same word was used, but went where? To Tarshish. Because he did not think evil people deserve the mercy of God. He did not think sinful people deserve God's kindness. So now we see the second time around, Jonah obeys God. But Jonah's obedience is what I like to call real-life obedience. It's messy, it's complicated, it's imperfect. Jonah's obedience is not like the simple and clean-cut box obedience we often would like to put our Christian walks into, isn't it? For some reason, somehow, we, we have this expectation of repentance to be easy and clean and simple. I mean, I hear it all the time in, in conversion testimonies. First, you say, I'm a sinner, I used to party a lot, I did this, this, that, and I'm a sinful person, I don't deserve God's grace, and how sinful am I? And then second, you say, but I now realize the cross, and Christ has saved me, and I realize that all my sins and all my shortcomings have been put upon him on the cross, and now I'm saved by grace alone, and then we say, now I sin no more. I'm completely freed from it. I look back at my old struggles and I say, oh, what a distant memory. Pride, lust, selfishness, what are those things? I'm a Christian now. Those things are things of the past. Let me ask you, Christians, who've at least been a Christian for a few months, maybe even a few weeks, is that true for you? No, absolutely not. That's not real life. That's a clean-cut, sanitized version of Christianity. We want to put things in. It's just not the case for many people, and it's for sure not the case for me, and definitely not the case for Jonah. Yes, Jonah obeyed God in chapter 3, verse 3, and he arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, but his obedience was by no means pure. Let's look at how the author describes Jonah's obedience here in verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. Now, usually I don't talk much about original language in my sermons because sometimes I don't feel that's helpful and it can actually distract people from the point of the message. But I think for this one text, the original Hebrew does give a deeper insight into what the author meant. All right? So let's talk about that uh, throughout the text. The original Hebrew here is much more poetic than the English and even in the Indonesian. It carries much more meaning to what the author is trying to say. Specifically here, what I want to look at is the word began. Jonah began to go into the city. The word, the word began, or hi'alal in Hebrew. Hi'alal, it literally means letting loose or untying. You're untying, he's, he's untying, he's letting loose. But here in the ESV, hi'alal is translated to the word began. Why was it translated to the word began? Because there's no good exact English translation to the word hi'alal in the context that it's in. Okay, it's kind of like, how do you translate the word masuk angin into English. You, you, you just can't, especially in the context that we often say it, right? You know, dia keluar semalaman terus masuk angin. You can't literally translate that to English. What are you going to say? He went all night and now wind entered into him? <laughs> that doesn't get across what the author's, with the meaning, right? You say he went out all night and now he has a cold, right? But masuk angin, if you believe in the concept, um, <laughs> that's another sermon, I guess. The orig original meaning of it, masuk angin, is different than just the common cold. But if we say wind enter, it won't get the, so we say cold, 
right? So he went on. Same with the word hialal. In the context it's in, it makes more sense to say he began to go into the city. But the meaning of it has much more than just the meaning began. It means loosen or untie. Here's what the author is trying to say. When Jonah was entering into the city, Jonah had to cut loose his own ideals. He had to let go something he held on so tightly to. What did he have to loosen? What did he have to untie? Well, if we see his behavior in chapter 1, when he disagreed that Nineveh deserved a second chance and ran away from God because he believed that sinful people should all perish, and then later we see his behavior in chapter 4, where after God saved Nineveh, what did he do? He complained. He threw a hissy fit. He said, I can't believe you saved them. I knew you were going to save them. I shouldn't have preached in the first place if you were going to save them. Now just kill me. He, he got really angry. What he had to let go as he obeyed God and entered into the city was his own sense of justice. He had to unloosen it. He had to let it go. Jonah here in chapter 3 is still struggling with the same thing he was struggling with in chapter 1. He's still struggling with the thing he will struggle with in chapter 4, which is saying that justice, God, these people deserve to die because they are sinful people, which really stems out of pride and self-righteousness. But yet here in chapter 3, for a split second, he let it go. He released it. He let loose his own philosophies and his own understandings of life, and he submitted to God. In short, he obeyed God even when he did not want to do it. He obeyed God even when he did not want to do it. And what did God do with that obedience, that half-hearted, imperfect, impure obedience? Did he disapprove it? No, he used it to save a whole city. So here's what we see about obedience here. We are called to obey God even when our hearts are not fully in it. We are called to obey God even when our hearts are not fully in it, like Jonah. Now hold on, I know how that sounds, so let's talk about it. Okay? This concept of obeying God when we don't feel like doing it. It goes against every postmodern Jakarta, Indonesia, but yet a little bit westernized ideologies that we have here. Okay? Our culture has an ideology that says we must be what? Authentic. We must be authentic. We must be true to ourselves. Because if we do something that our hearts aren't fully in it, we might as well not do it because we're being inauthentic, right? We're not being honest to ourselves. And our culture worships authenticity. We don't want to be fake. And many would say Jonah's obedience was inauthentic because he did not want to obey God, but yet obeyed him anyways, right? This is what people will say, inauthentic living. We need to stay true to ourselves. And many who desire authenticity use this reasoning to justify their disobedience. We say things like, I'm going to wait till my heart's fully in it before I obey God. Because if I do it when my heart's not fully in it, it's going to be displeasing to God. We say that. You know, I don't want to read the Bible before I really feel this internal desire to do it. Or I don't want to, because if I open the Bible when I don't want to, it's inauthentic. Or with prayer, I'm not really going to pray until I feel like there's this push to pray. Or I don't want to share my faith. I don't want to give to those who need. Or maybe I don't want to go to church unless there's this like authentic inside out push and drive to do that. And just to be clear, 
The Bible is all about authentic living. It is. It encourages authentic living. It says your emotions and your desires should be in tune with what God has commanded. But at the same time, it's all about obeying God too. How can it be about authentic living and obeying God? How can we do both when my heart, if I'm honest, is often half-hearted, disobedient, rebellious like Jonah's? How can I do that? How can I live authentically and still obey God? Simple. Here's the solution. Obey God and be honest that it's hard. That's it. Obey God and be honest that it's hard when you do it. That's as authentic, authentic as it gets. Look, when many read Jonah's obedience in chapter 3 and realize that he did not do it out of a full heart, he did it begrudgingly, he did it half-heartedly, and we're quick to say that in, it's inauthentic. No, it's not. It's not inauthentic. It's very authentic. It was immature, yes. It was imperfect, yes. It was half-hearted, yes. It is by no means the ideal picture of obedience we have in Scripture, yes but it's not inauthentic. Why? Because he was honest about it being hard. <laughs> he began to enter in the city. Some commentators would even say, all it tells us that he, he began to enter into the city. We, not, we, we don't need to assume he went any further. <laughs> he didn't want to do it. He just kind of went there and said five words. <laughs> it's the most half-hearted, rebellious type of obedience you can ever ask for. It's like, God's like, really? <laughs> like, I told you to go in. That's all you did? Immature, imperfect, rebellious, not the ideal version of obedience by any means, but it was not inauthentic. He obeyed God but admitted that it was hard. What is the dictionary definition of authenticity? It's to live in a way that is true to oneself. Live in a way that is true to oneself. If that's the case, Jonah's obedience was actually very authentic. He was true to himself. I'll obey you, God, because you're God and I'm not. But I don't want, it's really hard to do it. Now, if he pretended like he agreed with God's decision, if he pretended like he was jolly about doing it, if he pretended like it wasn't hard for him to obey, then he would have been inauthentic, you see. But he didn't. He was honest about it being hard. Why? Because he realizes, he obeyed anyways, because he realizes that my emotions does not have ultimate authority over my life. My emotions does not have ultimate authority over my life. My emotions is not my God. And he trusted God instead of his sporadic emotions. Look, here's the point. Let me just say this. We have permission to obey God even when our hearts are not fully there yet. We have permission to obey God, even when our hearts aren't fully there yet. Now, of course, we want our hearts to be fully there. Of course, we're not okay with being in that spot. Of course, we should want our obedience to be driven by pure motives. But if you wait to obey God until you really, really, really feel like doing it, if you wait to obey God before your motives are 100% pure, you're never going to end up obeying God that's just not going to happen in a broken, sinful world that we live in with the broken and sinful hearts that we have. To obey when you don't want to does not mean you're being untrue to yourselves. It doesn't mean you're being inauthentic. It just means you're being honest about it being hard, which is still authentic. 
Now I know this isn't the magic solution, okay? Your disobedience or my disobedience isn't just gonna disappear by hearing this one point. But you know what it does? It takes away the excuse of authenticity that we so often, or at least I know I so often, hide behind. It takes away the excuse of inauthenticity that we, authenticity that we so often hide behind. I mean, it's a smart excuse. We're smart people, did you know that? It's a very smart excuse. This excuse kind of allows us to be disobedient while still looking kind of spiritual at the same time, right? You know, I don't, I don't wanna be legalistic. My heart's just not there yet. So I'm, I'm going to wait to do it until my heart's there because I want to give to the Lord all that I am. Right? <laughs> Far be it for me to offer the King of Kings a half-hearted obedience. I'll just wait till I really want to do it, then I'll do it. No, you can't hide behind that anymore. Because now we know the solution to being authentic isn't to not obey when you don't feel like it, but it's to obey and be honest about how hard it is. That's authenticity. Obey and don't lie about it being easy. Obey and be authentic about it. But is God pleased with such obedience? Can God use such, such half-hearted servants? All right, let's go to our second point. Number two, making sense of obedience from Nineveh's repentance. Let's take a look at the result of Jonah's half-hearted obedience. Can God use it? Well, let's look at the result. A whole city repented. Let's, let's discuss, let's dissect what happened first. Let's, let's look at Jonah's message to the Ninevites. Maybe, maybe it was some kind of unbelievable presentation of God's word. Maybe, maybe it was some unbelievably well-crafted language that worked in the hearts of the Ninevites and they all repented. Let's, let's look at what he said in verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it? Really? That's, that's all he said? Eight words? In Hebrew, it's actually only five words. He barely said, any, he barely was obedient. <laughs> if anything, he wanted them to probably not hear the message so that they wouldn't repent. Yes, this could have been a summary to his longer message, but still, it probably wasn't that much longer if the summary was only five words in the Hebrew. And the main point wasn't winsome at all. It was an ultimatum, repent or you'll die. <laughs> it's like, you're telling me a short, inarticulate, half-hearted message from a rebellious person led to a whole city, a city that we see later in chapter 4 had 120,000 people living in it, to repent? What in the world? It takes me 12 to 15 hours to prepare one sermon and 45 minutes to deliver it, and it's a good day if people don't fall asleep. Jonah went into enemy territory half-heartedly, with a short offensive message that he barely even wanted to say anyways, and 120,000 people repented. Let's make sense of this. Okay, first how, first, how did Nineveh understand that they needed to repent just from this one short message? Okay, well, because again, in the original language, the, the message was loaded with, with meaning. The, 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 the word I'm going to focus here is the last word of, the, of Jonah's message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Overthrown is loaded with meaning. Overthrown is another way to say it. Overturned, or maybe is another way to say it, to be overturned in the Hebrew is hapak. Hapak, or overturned, has double meaning in the Old Testament. And this is, this is crucial for this text. It has a double meaning in the Old Testament. It's used in both ways interchangeably. The first meaning, it can mean to be hapak, to be overturned or destroyed, 
Like when a kingdom is overturned, it's destroyed. Example of this is Genesis 19, verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, destroyed, right? God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew, the word there is hapak in the Hebrew, the cities in which Lot lived. So hapak in Genesis 19 is used in a sense that it's being overthrown, right? It's being destroyed. But in, do, uh, but in um, and, and the other sense to, uh, to use the word hapak is not to overturn, but to the exact opposite, turn over. Turn over as in repent, turning somebody over to Christ. It's not overturning a kingdom, but turning over. In a sense, it's to save, not to destroy. Examples of this, the same word hapak is seen in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and be turned, hapak, turned over into another man. Hapak used in the sense of salvation. Deuteronomy 23, 5, one last passage. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, Instead, the Lord your God turned, turned over, hapak, the word there, the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So double meaning. Hapak can be used to overturn and destroy or to turn over and save. What was Jonah's message to Nineveh? Yet 40 days Nineveh shall be hapak. But which meaning of hapak did he mean? to be overturned and destroyed by God, or to be turned over and saved by God. This is part of the tension of the narrative. It fits in with the whole book as well. This, this loaded message brought Nineveh to a halt. Imagine a buzzing city with all its activities and all its trades. It's by all means an urban metropolitan, just like Jakarta is, really. All its business was brought to an abrupt halt. And 120,000 people believed. Let's, let's look at that, verses 5 to 8. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance and sadness over their sin. From the greatest of them to the least of them, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Go on fasting, right? Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, which signifies repentance. The imagery here is a whole city being turned over, hapak, to God, by the word of God, even in how it happened. It didn't start from the king. Usually, edicts like this would start from person of authority, the king, and it'd be given down to the people. Where did it start in verse 5? Everybody believed. And then, verse 6, it went upwards. The word reached the king. It started from the bottom up. And then verse 6, the word reached the king and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. The imagery here is a force coming from the bottom up, turning over the whole kingdom upside down, even the king himself. What happened? In verse 6, the word knocked the king out of his throne, saying, I'm not the one on the throne. I'm not God. I don't have ultimate authority. He does. It ripped him away from his clothes, which represented self-imposed fake glory, and it threw him down to the ashes. The whole city, from the bottom up, turned over, saying, let us no longer act as autonomous people, 
who, as if we have the right to make decisions for our lives and be the primary voice of our decisions, let us take ourselves off the throne, let us be done with counterfeit fake glories we have robed ourselves with, and let us mourn for how we've offended the King of Kings and obey Him, rather than obeying ourselves. Side note, this, by the way, is what repentance looks like. To truly see our sin and the holiness of God, our Creator, and to be turned over. Crying out, saying, I'm a sinner in need of mercy. Saying, all my power, all my stature, all my money, all my connections, all my popularity, all my possessions, all my strength, all my beauty, all the good deeds that I've collected and thought it would earn me salvation before He who is sovereign over all amounts to dust. And this brings us to the cross and say, let us now get off our thrones and recognize him as Lord of all and Redeemer of all. Is this what Christianity is to us, to you? Not that we have to feel this ecstatic all the time and rock, walk around with ripped clothing in a bucket of dust. No, that's not what I'm saying. But there is an aspect of Christianity and a realization of the gospel that affects our hearts in such a way that it throws us down to our knees, that propels us into awe and wonder of why he would save me, why he would save you. What have you done? Us, who like Jonah, like the Ninevites, is but an undeserving sinner, saved by his mercy and his grace, paid for on the cross. And this should turn over, hapak, our affections and our lives to him. Okay, let's get back to our point. What do we learn about obedience here? Let's take a look at Jonah's situation again. All the odds were stacked against him. He was in enemy territory. He was half-hearted and begrudging in his obedience. He was given an offensive message to preach. God didn't tell him what to say. He said, go to Nineveh, and I will tell you the message that you're going to preach in verse 1. He was unprepared. He was given an offensive message, but the result of his obedience, this impure, imperfect, half-hearted obedience was the repentance of a whole city. Why? Why would God take this rebellious sinner and use him in such a mighty way? Because God wanted to make a point, a point that Jonah said at the end of chapter 2, that salvation belongs to me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So in the first point we learn that obedience should not be dictated by our emotional fluctuations. Our emotional ups and downs does not have ultimate authority in our decision-making. But now here we see that our obedience should not be dictated either by our pragmatic speculations. Pragmatic meaning practical results. It should not be dictated by what we think the outcome of one should be. At best, it's speculation. Let's get into that. Pragmatically speaking, practically speaking, it made absolutely no sense for Jonah to obey God in this situation. He wasn't allowed to prepare a message beforehand. I will tell you what you're going to say. He was, he was sent into the heart of enemy territory. His heart wasn't even fully in it. This is all a recipe for disaster. <laughs> God? <laughs> But yet, but yet the Lord used this disobedient, unfaithful, faithful, barely, unrepentant, repentant, barely, 
half-hearted prophet to be the propitiator of the single most successful ministry result in all of the Old Testament. <laughs> now, this is interesting because he contrasts it with what happened to the prophet of Isaiah, prophet Isaiah in, in chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, you may know, was another prophet in the Old Testament. He was portrayed in a much better light than Jonah, right? In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was in the temple. He was worshiping God. He was experiencing God's grace. He was praising him. He was in intimate dialogue with God. And then in this fullness of intimacy, God asked him a question. Who shall, send, who shall we send to preach? Who's going to preach for us? Isaiah in chapter 6 verse 8 said, Here I am, God, send me. He was not rebellious like Jonah. He was in a good spot with God. His heart was all in. He was passionate. He was prepared. He was willing. A much better candidate for ministry success than Jonah, I'd say. Surely someone like Isaiah would have better pragmatic results than Jonah. Surely more than 120,000 people repented from Isaiah's ministry, right? No. Do you know how many people repented from Isaiah's ministry? Zero. <laughs> right after Isaiah said in chapter 6, verse said, Here I am. God said that he will, Isaiah will preach to a people in verses 9, 10, and 11 who will keep on hearing but do not understand. This is right after he said, Here I am, send me. You will preach to a people who will keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. And Isaiah was like, What? Then I said, how long, O oh Lord? How long do I have to do this? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. <laughs> Here we have Isaiah, a prophet with bold stature, with a willing heart, without any known prior disobediences like Jonah, in the midst of worshiping God, saying with passionate resolve, send me, I'll go, I'll preach your message, me, I'm the man, and in his whole life did not experience one person repenting. But Jonah, rebellious, sinful, prideful, half-hearted, reluctant prophet, God used to save a whole city in one day. What is God trying to say? Salvation belongs to me. Not to how well you preach the message. Not to how well you craft yourself. It belongs to me. And we are to measure faithfulness not by pragmatic speculations of what might could happen if you make a decision. We measure success by how faithful we are in the preaching and the living out of the Word of God, the Bible. That's success. How do we measure our success, CCC? Is it by pragmatic results? What is Christian success? Is it having a big church with big numbers, with a big bank account? Is that what we want? Is that why we're here? Or is our success measured by how relentlessly faithful we are in preaching and living out the word of God? None of us have the strength to commit to that. So let us now beg the Lord that he might have grace upon us that we may never succumb to measuring heavenly success by worldly standards. May faithfulness to his word both in what we say and do, be the measure of our success, not pragmatic results. That belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to Him. So let's summarize here. We've seen in point one, 
Let's stop hiding behind the excuse of authenticity to justify our disobedience. Obey God when it's hard. Just be honest about it being hard. There, there's your authenticity. It is not within our best interest anyways to order our lives primarily around what we feel like doing at a given moment. Have we ever done that? Have we ever made a decision based on what you felt like was best but then ended up regretting that decision? I have. It's not in our best interest to do that. And if you haven't, you will. Just keep doing it. It's not in our best interest to do that, point one. Point two, let us also stop hiding behind the excuse of pragmatism to justify our disobedience. Let us not hide behind the excuse of authenticity to justify disobedience. Let us not hide behind the excuse of pragmatism to justify disobedience. Obey God, even when at times our finite minds have calculated other preferable results. It is not within our best interest anyways to allow our pragmatic calculations, which at best really are speculations, be the ultimate authority of our decisions. Have you ever calculated a decision and thought it was the best decision, but then after making it, realized it was actually a very bad decision? I have plenty of times. It is not in our best interest to do that because at the end of the day, we don't know the future. At best, our calculations are, are predictions of short-term forecasts. There's no way we can know every single long-term consequence and ripples that our decisions will make. Not even a really high-tech computer can do that. But God can. And he's called you to trust him instead. Trust me. What is in our best interests is not to order our lives primarily around what feels right at a given moment, is not to order our lives around what pragmatic speculations that our finite and imperfect minds can muster up at a given moment. But what is in our best interest is to order our lives around the revealed will of God as he has given us in his word. Now I admit some decisions are clearer than others, like don't commit adultery, the seventh commandment. You don't have to sit around and say, hmm, let me decide. No, like that's pretty clear. But yes, I do admit that some decisions are harder and more complicated and kind of lies more in the gray area, like what career to choose or who to date or marry. All these gray area decisions, I can't get too much into it, but what's going to guide you through these decisions usually is not going to be like a spelled out verse like the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. But this is why it's so important for us all to seek wisdom, search his word, grow in intimacy with God so that you know what he pleases and what he is displeased by in all areas of life that has less explicit commands. Pray, seek biblical counsel, and based on what you think is most pleasing to the Lord, based on what you know of Him through His Word, do it. Christianity isn't like God giving us a rule book to life. It's a relationship. I don't make decisions with my wife based on a set of rules she's given me, but I need to know her, who she is, what pleases her, what displeases her, and based on my knowledge in an intimate understanding of who she is, I make decisions accordingly. There's no one guideline for every decision I make. That's the case for any relationship. Why is it different than God? It's a relationship. Get to know him. Grow in intimacy with him. That's why you can't just come to a crossroads, then open the Bible and say, what do I do? No. If you haven't already done the hard work of getting to know who the creator is, you're going to have a hard time deciding when you come to that fork. Do it, do it before you're at that fork. Get to, get to know who he really is and what he likes. And based on what you think is most pleasing to the Lord, do it. Whether you feel like doing it or whether or not it is approved by your pragmatic speculations.
do it. Now, let's move on to the last point. Where can we find the power to do the above? How can we be encouraged to begin and continue to make decisions and live a life not primarily based on our sporadic emotions or by our finite pragmatic speculations? Last point, making sense of obedience from the cross. This whole time, throughout the sermon, we've, we haven't stated it clearly or explicitly, but there's been a few reasons we've thrown out, the, out there of why it's implied that God deserves to be obeyed over our pragmatic speculations and over our sporadic emotions, okay? We mentioned it briefly throughout the sermon. One is we mentioned that he should be obeyed because he has most, most authority. Thus, he has the ultimate right to command us and therefore us as his creatures are to offer our submission to him first and foremost before we offer it to anything else like our fluctuating emotions or our pragmatic speculations. Because he's Lord, not our emotions, not our pragmatic speculations. He is Lord. Two, it's been implied throughout the sermon that he should be obeyed not only because he has most authority, but also because he has most knowledge. He knows the eternal purposes of creation. He knows every single ripple effect that our decisions would create in relation to his bigger redemptive story and plan for all of creation. It's better to trust and rely on him who literally knows it all before we trust our fluctuating emotions and our pragmatic speculations that at best can predict short-term outcomes. But these reasons aren't enough. They're not enough. They shouldn't be enough. Why not? Because there's one important missing factor. Look, if, if someone comes up to you and says, obey me because I have all authority and all knowledge, will you obey him? You shouldn't. It'd be unwise to obey him because he has not yet convinced you of the most important factor, that he has your best interest in mind. It doesn't matter that he has all authority. It doesn't matter that he has all knowledge. If we can't trust that he plans on using all that authority and all that knowledge for our good, why should we trust him? That'd be silly to do that. So how can we know that God does truly have our best interests at heart? How can we have faith that his intentions, not just his authority and knowledge, but his intentions is for our good? Well, let's take a look at our passage one last time. I want to point, what I want to point out is how the, Ninevites, or the Nineveh was saved. See, we will miss God's intention here if we think that the Ninevites was saved by their repentance. If their repentance earned their salvation, we would have missed, missed the main point. Look at verse 9. After all their repentance, after all their mourning, after all their sadness and their fasting and sackclothing, what did the God say in verse 9? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fear and anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? The king got it. He understood how deep of a trouble he was in because of his sin. Oh, let us not think for a second that our apologies and our fastings can take away the consequences of our sin. Let us not think for a second that our apologies and our, our sadness can, can take away the consequence and the punishment of what we deserve. That won't even work in a human court of law. I can't be guilty of a crime and then in the courtroom say, oh, I'm really sad about it and I'm not going to eat for a few days, so can I just be let go? No. If justice is to be served the punishment must still have to be executed. I can't just say I'm sorry and I'm sad and I'm going to fast, go on a diet for a few months. No. The crime must be paid for. 
So then why would God, or rather, how can God have mercy on the Ninevites and on Jonah, who has committed horrific war crimes because they were sad? No, 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 justice must still be paid. Because they, were, they fasted? No, no, justice must still be paid. How? Because of the cross. There's a passage I want to lead us through in the New Testament that we're going to dissect here a little bit, and it will tell us how God can have patience and can relent from his anger of people who sinned, of sinners, of everyone who came before Christ. Romans 3, verse 21 and 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, Jonah's a prophet, Jonah bears witness to this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a payment by His blood. This is where justice is served, the cross, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine what? Forbearance. Because in His divine patience. Because in His divine waiting, forbearing, He has passed over former sins in whomever he's pleased to pass them over, and put them on where? Put them on the cross. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He was able to forbear the sins of the Ninevites. He was able to relent from his anger, not because they were sad about it. That's not enough. He was able to relent from his anger of our sin not because we're sad about it, not because we're fasting. That's not enough. Because he knows that justice will be paid by who? By himself. When he climbed on that cross. That's why he relented. That's why he forbeared. Not because of me saying I'm sorry. My repentance, my sadness, those are results and those are mixed in my salvation. But it is not what saves me. Christ saves me. And I repent because God has made that reality true and real and effective in my heart. That's why God in Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 have forbearance and restraint to relent. Chapter, verse 10 in your passage, he, he, he relented of the disaster he said he would do to Nineveh. And he did not do it. That's why God relents the disaster due to us. The disaster we both receive and the Ninevites also receive, rightfully received due to our sin because of the cross. We can be, listen to this, hapak, remember? We can be turned over and saved because Christ was overturned and destroyed. A fate meant for our disobedience, he took upon himself. One more passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, 24-25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You know what this means? It means that we can fully trust him and be encouraged to obey him instead of our fluctuating emotions and our pragmatic speculations. Because this, the cross, shows God does not only have all authority, he does not only have all knowledge, but he has your best interest in mind. And therefore, he's trustworthy and passes as our ultimate object of trust 
and obedience to follow his every word. He has most authority. He has most knowledge, but he's also proven himself on the cross. He is also most loving. Trust him. Rely on him. Put your hands on his faith. Put your faith in his hands by obeying him. <coughs> even, <coughs> even in the midst of fluctuating emotions, even in the midst of uncertain pragmatic outcomes, trust him. By the way, this isn't blind faith. People make it sound like if I trust God instead of myself and what I feel in my own calculations, it's blind faith. Not at all. Whether you trust God or yourself, faith is required in both. It's just a matter of who you have faith more in. Are you going to have more faith in your emotional fluxes? Are you going to have more faith in your pragmatic short-term speculations? Or if you believe in the Bible, are you going to put your faith in a God who says he's all-knowing, has all authority, and most loving. It's not that one requires faith and the other doesn't. They both require faith. Who will you place your faith in, yourself or on this God? So I hope from this passage we can be encouraged to trust him above all, which starts by receiving him, accepting what he has done on the cross for you, and realize that through this I can be saved, and through this I can have a relationship and begin my walk with him. Then after, as saved sinners, continue to trust him and navigate through the often treacherous and confusing paths of lives, holding on tightly to his words, trusting him always, all the way, our creator and our redeemer, above our emotions, above our pragmatic speculations. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and realize how hard this is to do for us. And if, to be honest, by, by Monday, by Tuesday, even by tonight, um, Father, our obedience will at best be not so far from Jonah's. <laughs> Maybe it'll be better by your grace, I hope. But Lord, as we go through life and as we're confused and as we have half-hearted obediences, give us the grace and mercy to trust and have faith on you more than on anything else. Let us no longer hide behind the excuse of authenticity. Just obey and be honest about it being hard. Let us no longer hide behind the excuse of possible pragmatic speculative outcomes. We really don't know all the ripples and all the effects like you do. And let us trust in you that you loved us unconditionally. We did not earn your repentance. We did not earn your salvation by our repentance but you have freely given it to us on the cross. And now because you've made that reality real in our lives, we repent, we have faith, and we trust in you as many times as we may stumble. Thank you for this love. Let us first receive it and put our trust and everlasting fate in your arms on that cross. And if we have done so for eternity, give us the grace to do it for today. There's a place where mercy reigns and never dies. And there's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide. Where all the love 
first time really hearing about the gospel in the sense that um, that we are an undeserving sinner in, in, in only hope of mercy uh, by the grace of God alone, then I encourage you to come up to me or anybody you've seen up front today. Uh, just come up to them and ask him about, um, about that. And we'd love to encourage you to start a dialogue with that. Second thing, um, if you want to check out more about Covenant City Church and know about who we are, I encourage you to join our membership class, uh, which is right after this and 20 minutes from now. Lunch should be provided. Just just wait in this room, and we will start. It'll end at about 1:45 or two, okay? And I encourage us all that 
by tonight, you're going to be encountered with a fluctuating emotion, I guarantee you. By tonight, you're going to be discouraged to obey because of some kind of pragmatic speculation. Your finite, my finite minds might have conjectured. I just want to encourage you to uh, continually trust in the Lord and continually obey Him, first and foremost, who has all authority, all knowledge, and is most loving for you. Receive now your benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Now go in His peace. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.